Hello and welcome to another episode of Kufai's Middle East Briefing Podcast. I'm your host, Kasim Hafiz, and thank you for joining us. Today is Israel's Independence Day, Yom Hatzimot, so a happy Independence Day to Israel and all the Israelis out there. It's incredible what a young country has done in such a short time, and we are always grateful and very proud of the strong friendship and alliance between the United States and the State of Israel. We have a great episode for you this week. Um, you may have seen the news about Israel and the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and it's very confusing, to be honest. I'm not a legal expert, and the how and the what and the whys have been a little confusing. And, of course, depending on what you read and where you read it, you get a, a million and one different opinions. So I'm very glad we've got a guest on today who will be able to unpack that and explain more about what's going on, whether the reasoning and the decision is valid, and what can be done and what options are available to Israel. So make sure you stick around for that. So without further ado, it's that time where I go over to the news roundup and let's see what's making the headlines. Okay, so let's see what's in the news this week. Iran has accused Israel of sabotaging its key Natanz nuclear site and has vowed revenge for an attack that appeared to be the latest episode in a long-running covert war. Iran's semi-official Noor News website said the person who caused an electricity outage in one of the production halls at the underground uranium enrichment plant has been identified. Necessary measures are being taken to arrest this person. The website reported without giving details about the person. Um, Iran blaming Israel for something going wrong. Shocking that. Um, there's not much to really add to this story. This The whole situation with Iran's nuclear weapons program has been troubling to Israel. There's no official confirmation from Israel that they were involved. But like many things in certain parts of the world, if anything bad happens, blame Israel. I think what's interesting is that the European Union they released a statement saying we reject any attempts to undermine or weaken diplomatic efforts on the Iran nuclear agreement. That was from EU spokesman Peter Stano. He insisted we still need to clarify the facts over events at the Iranian nuclear site. Germany, meanwhile, warned that the latest developments did not bode well for nuclear talks aimed at reviving the Iran agreement. Uh, sorry, the nuclear agreement. It's I would say it's hilarious, but it's probably inappropriate. It's so bizarre to me that nobody seems to care, the EU, about Iran's spread of terrorism, their funding of terrorist groups like Hezbollah or the Houthis or the massacres that they're directly and indirectly responsible for in Syria, the attempts to murder American troops in Iraq. None of those apparently are undermining diplomatic efforts. But stopping Iran's nuclear program, a power outage, well, you know, that is undermining efforts. Uh, it's, it's sad. 
to be honest. It shows... I mean, for me, it shows why the regime in Tehran has very little respect for the powers that it's negotiating this deal with or renegotiating because they seem to not want to call out Iran for its evil actions. And this isn't just about Iran. This is about... If anybody was doing this, any country was spreading terror, was funding the education that Iran funds, was chanting death to Israel and death to America or death to anybody on a regular basis, we wouldn't be acting like business is normal. And we shouldn't. And the fact that we're so eager to get back into a nuclear agreement with a country that's doing this is just bewildering to me. Elsewhere, uh, the Defense Secretary, Lloyd Austin, was in Tel Aviv. He declared that the U.S.'s enduring and ironclad commitment to Israel remains. The Associated Press reported that Austin made the remarks after meeting with Israeli Defense Minister Benny Gantz in Tel Aviv. This is his first visit to Israel by, sorry, this is the first visit to Israel by a member of President Biden's cabinet. Uh, Secretary Austin said after meeting Gantz, our commitment to Israel is enduring and ironclad. Uh, also, just to add, I, there were reports that on meeting Secretary Austin, Prime Minister Netanyahu said that Israel would do what it had to to stop Iran from getting nuclear weapons and do whatever it had to to protect its citizens. And the final story I'm just going to touch on. So Israel has told the ICC, the International Criminal Court, it does not recognize the court's authority. Israel will tell the ICC it does not recognize the authority of the tribunal, which is planning to investigate possible war crimes in the Palestinian territories. Prime Minister Netanyahu said after a meeting with senior ministers and government officials ahead of a Friday deadline, so that's just passed, to respond to an ICC notification letter, said Israel would not cooperate with the inquiry, but it will send a response. It will be made clear that Israel is a country with rule of law that knows how to investigate itself, he said in a statement. The response will also say Israel completely rejects the assertion that it was carrying out any war crimes. Israel is not party to the Rome Statute that established the ICC and therefore, by definition, not a party to the court. Now, I know the ICC story is one that is a little complicated, as I mentioned earlier. So our next guest we will have on literally in a minute will explain more about this. And that was the news roundup for this week. We'll be right back with that interview that I spoke about. We have Anne Hertzberg from NGO Monitor, who will give us some incredible information and Really, it's going to be hugely beneficial if you want to understand what is happening with the ICC. But we'll be right back after this quick word from Kufi. One of the biggest difficulties of the global pandemic has been being unable to travel as freely as we used to. But as the world recovers and travel opens back up, Kufi is doing its best to be the very first feet on the ground in the Holy Land. In November 2021, join Kufi for an unforgettable trip of a lifetime to Israel. Walk where Jesus walked, visit the United States Embassy, participate in an archaeological dig, and sail on the Sea of Galilee, plus much, much more. Learn more and see the full itinerary at www.kufi.org slash Israel. 
So without further ado, I want to introduce our guest who, like I said earlier, the whole issue with the ICC is a little confusing and and does a fantastic job of unpacking it and really making it very simple to understand. So Anne Hertzberg is the legal advisor and UN representative of NGO Monitor. I actually met Anne for the first time in Geneva uh, at the UN Human Rights Council. She's a graduate of Oberlin College and Columbia University Law School. Prior to joining NGO Monitor, she worked as an attorney in New York. Her areas of research include business and human rights, international human rights law, the laws of armed conflict, universal jurisdiction, international fact-finding, NGOs, and the UN. She's the author of the widely cited NGO Lawfare, Exploitation of Courts in the Arab-Israeli Conflict, co-author of Best Practices for Human Rights and Humanitarian NGO Fact-Finding and several other works. Anne's articles and op-eds have appeared in many publications, including Haaret, The Jerusalem Post, Ynet News, and The Wall Street Journal. And it is my honor and pleasure to welcome Anne Hertzberg. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. My pleasure. It's it's an honor to have you on and it's an honor to have an expert on this subject matter because honestly, yeah, international law, not my area of expertise Uh, at all. Law is not my area of expertise. (laughs) So, Okay, so I just got to launch straight into the first question. So first things first, could you tell our listeners a bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. So my name is Anne Hertzberg. I'm the legal advisor and UN representative for NGO Monitor. And we are a Jerusalem-based research organization that examines the activities of NGOs, human rights and humanitarian NGOs operating in the Arab-Israeli conflict, and how they intersect also in international institutions such as the UN, the ICC, of course, and the EU. And we also look at their funding and whether or not um, government funding that is going to these organizations is being used for the purposes that the money is supposed to be going for. Awesome. So I'm just going to add this as a side note. If you haven't heard of Anne before or seen her videos at the Human Rights Council, highly recommend them. When we work in this field, when you're supporting Israel, there's very few times you're like, we hear all this negative. Anne is the moments when you're like, yes, (laughs) somebody is giving it back and fighting back. So just put that out there. We'll probably share the links when we post. And actually, I think we met Thank there you. a few couple of years ago. Yeah, we that did. was when we, we did. We met the first time. Yeah. Yeah, so <laughs> it's a fun Absolutely. time. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so the ICC. Um, so that was the main thing I wanted to discuss with you. So this, the ruling, this current ruling uh, regarding... ICC having jurisdiction to investigate possible war crimes. So what are your thoughts on this development? So, you know, it's a, it's a very concerning development. It's not an unexpected development because it's been in the works and we could get into that um, for about, well, it's really been in the works for about 10 years, but it's gotten more serious, I would say, in the past five years. Um, and I think it's it's worrisome not only for Israel, Um, but also for the United States and also really for the broader issues of 
you know, sort of how in, international institutions are operating globally and how they are infringing on issues like state sovereignty and how they may even be hampering efforts to counter terrorism or um, other activities like that. So, it, so it is a it's a concerning development on several fronts. So, I mean, you touched on this a little bit because you said this has been in the works, but. Do you think there is a reason there's such an impetus now? I mean, Israel has been involved in other defensive wars. You cast lead, pillar of defense. Mm -hmm. but this, And maybe this is my own kind of ignorance or not it not being on my radar, but there seemed to be such a focus by the ICC itself this time to really get this pushed through. Definitely. I mean, when you look, so I'll, maybe I'll just give a little bit of background for your listeners. This might be um, just so they understand how, how the process has been working. In 2009, the Palestinians attempted to join the court and the Rome statute, which is the governing instrument of the court, requires that only states can join the court. So, and the Palestinian authority is not a state. So the prosecutor at the time, though, rather than just dismissing the Palestinian attempt to join the court, basically launched a almost three-year campaign to, quote unquote, debate the issue. So he should have just dismissed it out of hand. But he did not do that. He got all these scholars and NGOs together to try to figure out how Palestinians could join the court. So in 2012, he issued a ruling saying they were not a state and could not join the court. But what he did was gave them a blueprint how they could join the courts. And essentially what he said was that the U.N. general, the U.N. could admit uh, Palestine, you know, quote unquote, Palestine as a member state of the U.N. And so the Palestinians tried to get member status at the U.N. at the Security Council. That did not work. But the General Assembly admitted them as a non-member observer state. So simply on this name, which is not a substantive title, it's just the UN decided to call them a state, even though they're not. And based on that, in 2015, they tried to join the court again. And then the new prosecutor, Bensouda, Fatou Bensouda from the Gambia, agreed to allow them to join the court. And so she opened a preliminary examination at that time. And since that time, She's been moving through her steps, and um, in 2019, she filed a brief with what's known as the pretrial chamber, which is kind of a early stage court to confirm that she could open the inve an investigation against Israel, even though Palest Palestinian Authority was not a state. Um, and essentially, she came up with a very she invented a legal theory. Essentially, that doesn't exist anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and basically said it was okay for the Palestinians to join the court. And then in February of this year, the court agreed with her, essentially, in a two-to-one decision. And so uh, at the beginning of March, she opened the full investigation. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's... Okay. So, the, <laughs> so I... she, she went through a lot of hoops to get this case. You know, it wasn't... You know, it's one of the most contentious, obviously, conflicts in the world in history. And she basically made up a theory to get them to join the courts. So it's pretty disturbing. Yeah, no, that is. And it kind of answers my next question. So I'm going to ask it anyway. But 
Hey, so when I would think of the ICC, many think of the ICC, I'm not going to say me anymore. They they have this idealized notion of a court chasing, you know, the worst war criminals. How accurate is that perception, I guess? Right. Well, that's the thing. I think that was the original idea was to go after mass atrocities, you know, like what we saw in um, Bosnia or in um, Rwanda, you know, Democratic Republic of Congo, millions of people displaced, thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people killed, you know, mass rapes, child soldiers, really horrible atrocities. Um, But this prosecutor, she she really wants to go after Western countries. So not only has she now opened a case against Israel, she opened a case against the United States last oh, year wow. for the for Afghanistan. And she tried to go after the UK for Iraq. Um, that case she ended up closing could be political because the UK is a major supporter and donor of the court. So I wouldn't rule out if that was a factor, but you know, the United States and Israel are not members of the court and she really did not have the authority to go after them, but um, that's what she's doing. So really she's kind of shifted away from these mass atrocity crimes to go after basically to uh, litigate war, essentially fought by Western armies And um, I think what's also disturbing, part of the reason she did it was up until a few years ago, the court was primarily primarily looking at situations in Africa. Yeah. And so there was this perception that the court was biased against Africa. And I mean, I didn't really buy that because um, many of the African countries asked the court to intervene because their judicial systems could not handle these types of cases. So they wanted the court to be there. And in and on the other hand, these are really unfortunately where the worst this was before Syria, of course, but you know, where the worst atrocities are going on right now. So it made logical sense that that's where the court cases would be focused. But I think to get away from that perception, she decided to go after the United States and but because the US is much more powerful, you know, Israel is the low-hanging fruit here. Yeah, no, that's unfortunate and and sad on many levels. You mentioned Syria. Has the has the ICC done anything about Syria? Has it, you know, looked into the regime or anything? No, because they say they don't have jurisdiction. Um, because Syria is not a member of the court. Now they tried to get the security one of the ways the court can look at a case is to go via the Security Council. Um, But that didn't work because Russia would veto any attempt to refer the case to the court. But, um, you know, there certainly a lot of the people fighting in Syria are nationals of member states of the court. So she probably could have found a way to do something about Syria. But of course, the, you know, she didn't, (laughs) you know, she would decide Israel was much more. Her speed, so. Of course. Yeah. Uh, so is there any legal standing for this decision by the ICC? Well, the problem is it is a – so most, most um, you know, you hear about things at the UN Human Rights Council, like, you know, fact-finding missions, Goldstone mission, 
on various car- conflicts that have been going on between Gaza and Israel. But um, the ICC is a, is a functioning criminal court. Um, I have a lot of problems with its rules. I, I don't think it really adheres in a lot of ways to criminal court standards, but it does have the ability to put people in jail. So even though, you know, especially in this case, her legal reasoning was not sound at all, it potentially, you know, and I mean, we could get into it whether in our case there will be a trial, but the court does have the ability to put people in jail. Just this week, they sentenced someone to 30 years in jail. So, um, so it does have legal standing, even if you don't, even if the reasoning probably wouldn't hold up in a lot of other courts, national courts. Yeah. I guess that makes it even more, I guess, scary in a way when, like you said, she's making decisions which aren't, there is no kind of precedence for them anywhere, but it has a legal standing where people can end up in prison. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so I, I, I guess I'm asking for confirmation on this. So something I read about the decision to investigate war crimes, the date that was picked is the date after the three Israeli kids were killed. So one, I guess, is that true? And two, how does the court even justify that? How do you, how do you come to that reasoning and go, okay, we're just going to leave what led to the conflict completely out of the investigation? Yeah, it's that's it's so disturbing that aspect of it. I'll just say, as on a personal note, I'm I'm very good friends with the family of one of the boys. Um, so for me, I take you know I take this really personally. Um, so the way so technically she's correct what she did because when the palestinians joined the court they set the date and so she'll say as a technical matter she doesn't have any leeway she has to go by the date that the palestinians chose because they're the ones that joined the court however i think she could have exercised a little bit of leeway there um you know especially because you know she's claiming that what she was doing you know, she wants to make sure it's like free of, but, you know, she claims it's free of bias and they're only just doing what the law requires, you know? So you would think that she, she could have changed the rules a little bit from that perspective, but I think that just shows like from the whole way, you know, it's the Palestinians are driving this. Um, and the goal is to go after Israel. She may, she may go after some Hamas, um, maybe, you know, maybe like a token. Um, but, but we all know, like when you read her reports, the crimes that she's focusing on are what she cl- are, you know, purported crimes by Israel, alleged crimes by Israel. She's not, she only has a couple things in there about Palestinian violations. So it's, it's pretty clear what her target is. Yeah. That's so. What does this investigation mean in real terms for Israel? What are the possible ramifications, if any? So, so there's. So I think really why the the main thing that will be going on now is bad PR, and I think that's why so many groups were trying to like this case really began. I mean, even twenty years ago, because a group of NGOs, Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, several Palestinian NGOs have been lobbying the court for years 
Um, so, that, and the real purpose is even if it never, even if there's never an actual trial, the idea is to always have Israel associated with war crimes. So, you know, the PR benefit for them is amazing, you know, cause you're going to see a million articles in the BBC, the New York times, Israel charged with, you know, Israeli minister charged with war crimes, you know? Um, and even though, so the, the court doesn't investigate states. They investigate, they try people, individuals, but, you know, ultimately they're going to be looking at Israeli conduct. So again, it's sort of like putting Israel on trial in, you know, the court of public opinion. Um, so that, that's the number one damaging thing. Another thing is um, rulings in the court, like just now her ruling that, the territory of the, a Palestinian state is, or the, of a Palestinian entity, is Gaza, West Bank, and East Jerusalem. So essentially, she's even though she claims she isn't setting the boundary and it has no binding, uh, it's not binding on you know any other for any other purpose. Obviously, you know the Palestinians, if they ever do get back to negotiating are going to say, that's our minimum. Why would we ever accept anything less than that? That's the ICC said, that's our territory, you know, and, and also you can see in Europe and the EU and many parliaments throughout Europe, of course, they're going to follow what the ICC says, even if the ICC says it's not binding. So that's another issue where these, these pretrial rulings by the courts can then be used to influence other court cases abroad. And then if it ever does get to a, uh, a point where she files, well, the, we'll get into, I guess, the prosecutors changing in June. But um, if they ever get to the point where they issue arrest warrants against Israelis, uh, essentially means anyone potentially, you know, that could be uh, incriminated can, can never travel to Europe again, basically. Um, they could only travel really to countries that are not members of the ICC for fear they might be arrested and sent to the Hague. So it's incredibly damaging from that perspective. You could see, you know, Benny Gantz, for instance, you know, was involved in the 2014 war and, you know, is the decision maker. So he can't like, what if he has a meeting, you know, in the UK or France, he couldn't go because he could be arrested and they may say, Oh, well, we'll give you assurances. We're not going to transfer you to the courts. But that raises a whole host of problems because the members of the court are supposed to cooperate with the court. So you can't even really trust their assurances. And the other thing is arrest warrants can be secret. So it could be they've they've gotten an arrest warrant against an Israeli official and they wouldn't even know about it. Um, Oh, wow. You know, it could be someone who was high up in the army, but now is a business person. And then they, you know, are traveling Switzerland or something for work and they get arrested and they may not even know. So that's also a serious, uh, potentially serious development. Wow. Uh, So I wanted to touch on something you mentioned uh, in terms of the ICC saying that these territories constitute a a Palestinian state. Is it within their mandate to kind of make decisions on sovereignty and territorial boundaries? They're they're not supposed to, you know, they're not not supposed to be political that way, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, and they didn't even I think what was really disturbing to me is they didn't even really 
it was a very um, non-substantive opinion. The, the majority opinion, it was two to one. It was probably only 25 pages of analysis. In contrast, the dissent, the dissenting opinion was 160 pages. Oh, wow. So they they didn't get into anything. They basically just said their their argument was basically the UN says Palestine is a UN a non member observer state, and therefore they can join the courts. And UN resolutions say the territory of a Palestinian state is Gaza, West Bank, and East Jerusalem, and so that's what we're going with. So they didn't do any substantive analysis. Or take into account Israeli potential Israeli rights also. Yeah. And and the other thing they did was they ignored the Oslo Accords. Um, so maybe for your listeners, if they don't know, the Oslo Accords were set up between 93 and 95, and it essentially set up a Palestinian government. It created the Palestinian Authority. And um, in that agreement, it explicitly says Palestinians have no ability to exercise criminal jurisdiction over Israelis for anything. And the way an international court works is a state can only give that international body the capacity it has to try people. So let's say I'm an American, you know, I'm in um, America and I want to join an international institution I can only give them the power that I have. I can't make up additional powers. So the Palestinians don't have the power to try Israelis for crimes. But yet the court said that didn't matter, even though there's an explicit agreement saying they can't. So again, they completely uh, ignored that issue. Uh, that it's So I've read some things, but just hearing you lay this out, I just mind blown is the only I'm like, how is this even possible? Why is this happening? That's crazy. Um, it is crazy. So it really is. I, I, again, like my hat goes off to you. You deal with this every single day. I mean, so. you have to I laugh. Appreciate. Otherwise you're just yeah. being despondent, you know, I, I get that. That yeah. I get. Um, so what are Israel's options legally, diplomatically at this stage? What can they do, if anything? It's limited, you know, to honestly. Um, they can shoot, they can engage with the court, but, you know, they're not members of the court. They don't, they didn't ask to be part of this. So it's like if they're forced to engage, then it's sort of like they're for, the court is forcing them to become part of the court, which they never asked to be part of. So that's problematic. Um, and I think just based on the court decision, what the prosecutor has said in her reports and her briefs, there was also a case several years ago on the flotilla at the court that got dismissed after a lot of back and forth. And when you read the papers in that case, I mean, I don't I think even if Israel tried to engage, it would just be ignored because when you look at like the types of laws they're applying. It's all, you know, I don't think it would really even matter if Israel tried. I don't think it would make a difference. Um, diplomatically, you know, I think I think really where the pressure lays is in, in European countries. You know, European countries are the main funders of the court and they need to step in and, you know, because 
when uh, she when the prosecutor filed a brief to move forward last year, there were seven countries that joined in Israel's favor. So that was Germany, Czech Republic, Austria, uh, Hungary, Uganda, Brazil, I believe. Yeah. And, and Australia, maybe. Um, and, you know, those are all countries that give a lot of money to the court. So it was great. They filed this brief in our favor. But, you know, Germany, for instance, is still giving them lots of money, still puts out lots of statements saying, you know, we support the court. But how can you how can they support the court when it's doing something so beyond its power to do? You know, so I really think that's where the main pressure can lie. Um, The U.S. government, I think, could play a role in that. You know, trying to put pressure on the on the European countries, whether they will, I don't know. You know, it's a new administration now. I don't know if they will want to. Um, but essentially, that's about all they can do. Wow. Yeah. I, I didn't realize how limited their options were. That's. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't I don't really see any other options because the, the court will move forward or it, it, there's a new prosecutor coming in and in um, June. So perhaps he will take a different view. That's possible, but I I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if he's bound by what the previous prosecutor, what the current one has been doing. It could be, he doesn't have the ability to stop what she's started, you know? So um, that's a possibility, but it's unknown. So, you know, the court's really acting on its own, even though it's controlled by states, but, yeah. you know, unless they're willing to exercise their leverage and, you know, unfortunately with European countries, uh, they're very, um, you know, they're how to say it nicely. <laughs> you know, they're sort of two faced. We'll put it that way. On yeah, the one I, hand, I would they claim they're supportive, but on the other hand, they don't really go out of their way. I was exercising my diplomatic silence there. Exactly. (laughs) The reason I live in North America now. (laughs) Uh, So my final question, uh, at Kufi, we have 10 million members who are passionate about standing up for Israel, strengthening the U.S.-Israel relationship. Is there anything friends of Israel in the U.S. can do? about this issue? Yeah, for sure. I I mean, definitely, you know, lobbying Congress members, both from both parties, I think is really important. And there's a lot of bipartisan support for Israel. You know, that's still an area where, you know, unfortunately, it's become a little bit more partisan in the past few years. But, um, but, you know, support for Israel has always been a very bipartisan issue, you know, overwhelming, um, you know, support you know, both in the Senate and the, and the House of Representatives. And I think that's, that's really where um, the members can exercise their leverage is, you know, really encouraging their Congress members, their senators, um, the, the president, you know, writing to President Biden and saying it's not okay what's going on. And the U.S. really needs to, to exercise leverage where it can to support Israel on this. And I mean, really, it's also an American issue because the court also is going to be looking at American soldiers. So it's, it's, you know, it's not just an issue for Israel. So, you know, and as much as, you know, everyone, you know, the, the members love Israel, I'm sure they love, you know, us soldiers even more, yeah. so, you know, for the, 
you know, it's, it's an issue really facing both countries. So, um, you know, that type of lobbying not only helps Israel, but also helps America significantly. For sure. No, I really appreciate that. That's great advice. And you've played such an important part today because so many articles take it into the weeds and into this kind of legal jargon. And you're like, I literally have no idea what is going on. <laughs> so thank you so much for like your answers and explaining it in a really concise and a way that I think is hugely accessible. So I really appreciate that. Oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. Uh, so I'm sure this is going to be dragging on for we'll see how long. So my last question is, I would like to have you back on at some point to explain deeper. So I'm going to try and get you to agree to this on air so you can't back out in the future. I promise. I promise. Okay, cool. Okay, cool. Okay, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much, Anne. I really appreciate your time and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon. Thanks so much for having me on. Okay, take care. We've had some great guests on this podcast, and I'm always grateful for those who take time out of their busy schedules to speak to us. But I have to say that was one of my personal favorites, simply because I I felt like I learned so much about a topic which is really pressing and not getting the balanced coverage it should be about how unjust and how wrong the whole situation is, how... Israel is once again being singled out. And again, we look at these global institutions like the UN and the ICC. And while many have lost faith in the UN, understandably so, the ICC still maintains some sort of facade of credibility. And we're just seeing it highlighted that when it comes to Israel, once again, there is a double standard and there is an applying of the law in very selective and intentionally negative ways when it comes to Israel. And and also Anne raised the important point about how this also affects the United States. So really grateful for Anne for taking time out of her day to speak to us. And I'm sure we will have her back at some point as this story develops and progresses. But without further ado, I'm going to kick it straight over to my colleague Karina who has some words of biblical inspiration for us all. Over to you, Karina. Thanks, Kasim. You know, not just in the tumultuous times that we're living in now, and I think we would all agree that they are indeed tumultuous, but in every period throughout history, the people of God are called to rise up and to represent the living God amidst a culture that is diametrically opposed to him. Hebrews 11, which has often been called the Hall of Faith, presents faith-filled heroes of history, giants in the faith who went before us and who now cheer us on as we walk with the Lord in our own lives and grow in faith. Among the names listed, albeit briefly, is Gideon. Gideon's story is found in Judges 6 and 7, and Judges 6 is kind of where I want to camp out for today's encouragement. Gideon, as we'll see, is just a human, like you, like me, like everyone listening. Gideon's just a human guy with human frailties and shortcomings who was nonetheless used by God to accomplish his divine purposes. We first meet Gideon during a difficult time for Israel. The book of Judges, as you may know, consists of a series of cycles in which Israel sins by pursuing idolatry. Then God allows them to be oppressed by other nations until Israel cries out in distress and God then delivers his people. And this happens over and over again in the book of Judges. 
Gideon lived during the fourth of these cycles, and Israel had been oppressed by the Midianites for seven long years. When Israel finally cried out to God after seven years, God immediately jumped into action. And his rescue would come through an ordinary man named Gideon. We encounter Gideon in a wine press threshing wheat. Uh, what, this was usually done in an open space. So it's odd that we find him in a wine press doing it. But the context of the beginning of chapter six tells us why. He was doing it to hide it from the Midianites because they had been terrorizing Israel in sort of a unique way. They'd been ripping up Israel's harvest and stealing Israel's livestock, causing God's people to literally run to the hills for shelter and leaving them starving. Gideon, for his part, when we find him, is doing all he knows to do until God calls him. He's preserving the wheat. Little does he know that God is about to call him and use him to preserve his people. So with that context in mind, let's read this, this encounter and see if we can't draw out three important points. So I'm reading from Judges 6, 11 through 16. Hear the word of the Lord. It says, then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. Then Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? He said to the Lord, O Lord, how shall I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least in Manasseh and I'm the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. The first thing I want you to notice about this encounter is that when God calls the person whom he chooses, he always commissions them and equips them. God doesn't reveal himself to anyone without redirecting them into a path that he set for them. Like Moses, Gideon was an ordinary man called by God to do an extraordinary thing. And the provision God gave him was the power of his presence. Notice that Gideon's question is a reasonable one. He helplessly asks God how he, of all people, would deliver Israel from the terrifying Midianites. And God's response is simply, surely I will be with you. God provides Gideon with the power of his presence. Then he promises him victory in the endeavor to which he called him. And he does the same for us. The second point I want you to notice is that God declares our identity, then develops us into our destiny. Listen, God approaches Gideon, who is a hiding from the Midianites, and addresses him as a valiant warrior. The word for warrior is literally mighty one, and it's even used to describe God in scripture. But Gideon, and, and it will become abundantly clear as the narrative progresses, Gideon couldn't be farther from this description. After all, he's a farmer. He's hiding He's young. His tribe is regarded as nothing amongst, amongst the tribes of Israel. But God called Gideon by the characteristics he himself would create in Gideon. He declared Gideon a warrior because he himself would develop Gideon into one. 
In the same way, if we're in Christ, we're called righteous and holy and blameless. And while it's true that positionally God regards us and looks at us as he regards and looks at his own son, we still need to be developed into these descriptions through constant practice and through walking with God. In other words, God declares our identity, then develops us into our destiny. And spoiler alert, our destiny is that one day soon, we will truly be presented to God through Christ as holy and as blameless, as spotless and unblemished, a totally new and perfect creation. Before our last point, let's read over Judges 6, verses 22 and just the beginning of 25. It says, when Gideon saw that he was the angel of the Lord, he said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and named it, The Lord is Peace. And to this day, it is still there in Ophrah of the Abyssrites. Now on the same night, the Lord said to him, and then it continues with the Lord's task. So we read in these verses that when Gideon realized who he had been talking with, and it was confirmed to him through a sign that the Lord graciously provided, Gideon was terrified and scared for his life because he knew that no one can look upon God and live. But God declared peace to him and graciously allowed him to live because he still had a purpose for him. And notice that the Lord did not stop with peace. And that brings me to my last point. It, it's that God gives us peace followed by a project. For those of you listening, if you're in Christ, God has a calling on your life. He has a calling on my life. He wants to use us to accomplish his purposes in the world. What better partnership could there be? And what more fulfilling future could there be for you and for me? But we learn from Gideon that it is our obedience right here today, right now, that determines where God takes us next. We know from the narrative in Judges 6 through 7 that God, uh, that Gideon was not worthy of God's calling, and neither are we. But what set Gideon apart and what catapulted him into his destiny was that he accepted the assignment God gave him. And by the Spirit of God, he obeyed God. And this obedience is what made room for the Lord to develop him into what God had already declared him to be, a mighty warrior, a warrior who would be remembered millennia later, memorialized in a very special chapter in scripture, Hebrews 11, as a man of great faith. So I want to leave you with those thoughts and the encouragement that your weakness, whatever it is, will not limit you in your calling. Your weakness is meant to provide a jumping off point for God's strength to be developed in you, just as it was in Gideon. Thank you for that, Karina. That's a really inspiring and important, timely word that you had for us there. Uh, I really appreciated what Karina had to say about Gideon, how he was just a human. He had human frailties. And when we look at the world around us, when we look at the problems and the issues, and it can be overwhelming. And we can think, what can one person do? And we can seem very small in a very big world. And I love that Karina said, you know, your weakness will not limit you in your calling. Ultimately, when God uses for some. When God uses us for something, it doesn't matter what your weaknesses are. It doesn't matter what your frailties are. And when God works through us, truly, we can do absolutely incredible things. And we can sometimes surprise ourselves. 
And I think Gideon is an incredible example of that. So thank you, Karina. That was really inspirational and something I will definitely want to go back to and listen to. And I'd recommend that to everyone else too. Like it's very inspirational. So before we close out the show, I have another quick word from Kufi. Do you want to grow in your knowledge of Israel and God's word, plus grow closer to God at the same time? Kufi has the resource for you. Launched at the beginning of this year, Kufi's Word of the Week is a weekly devotional sent to your email inbox that will encourage you, teach you, and give you ideas to apply God's word to your life. To sign up, visit www.kufi.org slash devotionals. So thank you for joining us for another episode of the Kufi Middle East Briefing. Once again, happy Independence Day. Happy Yom Hatzimut to all our Israeli friends out there. You have our support, our love, all those positive things from your friends in the United States. To everyone listening, please be sure to share this with your friends, family, running buddies, whoever is out there. Go for it. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And until next time, take care of yourselves, take care of each other, and be sure to check out the Kufi website, www.kufi.org. Take care. God bless.